Well, we're continuing again this morning on our series on Elisha, and we're looking at that thought, well, at least last time. I was going to say last week, but that was actually several weeks ago. We were looking at Elisha, and um, that thought of spiritual sight, right, that, that the master Elijah said to his servant, he, he said, you're going to receive what you ask if you see. If you see me ascending, then you'll have what you're asking, which was the double portion of the Spirit. Uh, and, you know, we looked at that thought that that's really the key to following God. If we see him, if we have eyes to see, if we have those eyes of faith that are looking not at the natural things around us, but upon God, our sight is fixed upon him. We looked at that thought of dove's eyes, you know, that we want to have that single eye for God. Not one eye on the world. It seems like one, some animals can like have one eye here and one eye there, you know, looking. But, you know, doves can only focus on the one thing and our eyes are to be fixed upon the Lord and, and what he has for us. I just wanted to touch on a few more thoughts related to this concept of, of our eyes fixed upon the Lord and seeing him and and. I, what I really wanted to illustrate is the struggle that takes place in this area, right? That each of us, right, we're going to have that struggle because we're natural beings. We were born in the natural. We have natural eyes, and the spiritual eyes are something we have to develop as we walk with God. And so there's that struggle of the natural and the spiritual of keeping our eyes upon them. It's a test each of us has to face. And there's some in Scripture we can look at and see they kept their eyes on God. Their eyes were fixed. Well, maybe there were times when they looked in the natural, but then they got it right back on. You know, we, we talked about Father Abraham. He was looking for a heavenly city. His eyes were upon it. And we, we uh, looked at Hebrews 11.10. Right? He was looking for a heavenly city with a heavenly foundation whose builder and maker is God. His eyes were upon something he couldn't see in the natural. Even though he was in the land of promise, there was nothing there that existed. In fact, the enemy possessed it. What a terrible thing. He's in the land of promise and he can't possess it. Well, all he, he could possess was a cemetery. <laughs> right? But he was looking for something beyond that. However, there are many in Scripture that were not able to keep their eyes upon God. You know, we can learn from them. In fact, sometimes we learn more from negative examples than positive. Because sometimes you, you, you look at people who are successful, who are able to overcome, and it's like, man, how did they do that? And I wish I, wish I could learn the things that they learned and so forth, but... You know, when you look at a negative, okay, what they did is a picture of what not to do. And so we can learn from negative examples. Okay, now I know what not to do in that situation. And sometimes learning, knowing what not to do is very important. And so we can look look at some negative examples. Um, One of them I was considering of the many examples in Scripture. Um, You know, I was just thinking from the very beginning, we see some examples. 
Um, well, of course, we can go back to the very beginning. We could think of Lucifer, right? He he turned his eyes from God and he started to think of himself and all that he could get for himself and worship. Uh, you could think of Adam and Eve. Eve was deceived. Um, he she, she became hooked by that thought of partaking of the forbidden fruit, took her eyes off what God wanted for her. Um, Adam, he wasn't deceived, but his eyes were on Eve and he was thinking, perhaps, you know, we could only assume he was concerned about what he would lose with Eve. But the, the one I wanted to consider was Cain. Cain. He was the next generation. I mean, he could have, he was the first one that had to grow up in a world that was not perfect. It wasn't the perfect thing that God wanted. Um, it was spoiled by sin. But however, heaven and God's kingdom was very close. The Garden of Eden was still there. He could go and he could see the angels guarding that that prevented him from entering in. Um, he probably heard the story of it. God was very real to him. God, in fact, was speaking still directly to them. I mean, Cain had a conversation with God himself. And so there was no doubt about whether God was real or not. However, Cain got distracted. He took his eyes off of God and put it on something else. Um, and it was the difference between him and his brother. Now, the, the difference naturally was Cain was a farmer he grew crops. Uh, that was probably satisfying. We've got a farmer in our midst, a former farmer, but he knows what it's like to grow something. And Well, he was both. I was, I was going to say Cain raised crops. Abel was a shepherd, and he raised animals. So um, I'm not sure what I'd rather do, raise crops or raise animals. They both have their challenges. Um, considering sheep, though, sheep can be a challenging animal to raise. I was actually watching this one documentary and and the 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 shepherd was being a little cynical because you know they they were they weren't wealthy but and each sheep was very valuable to him and he said you know even though you have everything perfect you have good food good shelter care those sheep still find a way to die it's like that's their goal in life i'm just going to find some way to die that's inconvenient for the shepherd um, you know, they go out in the cold and get lost or some disease comes before you can treat them and they just, you know, just die. And, and that's discouraging for the shepherd. And so there's pluses and minuses to both. But what I wanted us to notice is how Cain was looking at his natural situation. Because, you know, at this period of time, even though the law had not yet been written, there was still a need for atonement through blood. That was the only way that they could be atoned before God that required the sacrifice of animals. And of course, you know, Christ in the new covenant, he fulfilled that. His sacrifice fulfilled the need for atonement by blood once and for all. But Cain was looking in the natural at that. He wanted to do what, you know, what he chose to do in the natural. And he wanted that thing to be what would redeem him before God his effort. And, you know, that was, you know, that's actually one of the struggles in life is wanting to do what we want to do before God and then letting that be the thing that would redeem us. And mankind struggles with that. Right? I'm a good person. That's what Cain said. 
I want my, the work of my hands to be what redeems me. Well, that didn't go over well with God. Genesis 4, Genesis chapter 4, verses 3 through 5, it said, In the process of time came to pass that Cain brought the fruit of the ground as an offering unto God. Even though he, he pretty much knew this was not what God wanted, but he brought it anyway. And Abel, he brought the first of his flock and the fat. And the Lord had respect unto Abel and his offering, but unto Cain and his offering, he had no respect. Cain was angry and his countenance fell. He said, I want to redeem myself. I want the work of my hands to be what matters and, you know, what I can give to God and that he'll accept it. And he was upset when God didn't accept Cain doing things his way. You know, there's many things you could bring out here, right? I mean, you could bring out pride uh, that Cain had, the need for humility. He had to humble himself to his brother to get a sacrifice. Jealousy as is cruel as the grave, and that came out in how Cain related to his brother. But what I wanted to bring out is Cain lost sight of what really mattered in life, of pleasing God, pleasing our Heavenly Father. When we keep our eyes doing what pleases Him, we're kept, we're preserved. God is happy with us, and we're very happy with God and how He leads us. And so it's so imperative that we obtain that sight in our personal lives and we retain it of what really matters with God. And we make that our, our priority. Now, another word we often use for this concept is vision. Lord, what do you have for me? Lord, what will please you for me to do in my life? For, you know, what way do you want me to walk? What, what are you trying to deal with in me? Where do you want to bring me to in life? You know, without a vision, that sense of what really matters with God, what he wants us to do, we, we don't really have that. And if we don't have a vision, then we just kind of wander around thinking, well, maybe I'll try this. Maybe I'll try, maybe this will please God. Without a vision, we can wander. Wander, I could say, not know where we're going. But of course, Cain, that's what happened to him. He moved away from his family, and it says that he dwelt in the land of Nod. And that word for Nod, it means to be in exile, to be a wanderer. So he wandered from God because he lost sight of what really mattered. He had no vision anymore. But with the vision, we have a sense of purpose. We feel a connection to the pathway that God has for us even though it doesn't always make sense, right? When we have a vision, that doesn't mean everything is clear before us, right? Or that we're, we're, everything's being fulfilled. You know, you think about Father Abraham again. God promised him the land, called him the father of nations, but yet he was living in the midst of his enemies, these, these heathen folks. He didn't own any land, as I mentioned, except a cemetery. He had no children with Sarah, He was called the father of nations, but he didn't have any children. It's the opposite of the vision. But that was okay with God. Right? As long as we're walking in it and we're following him and we're surrendered. That's the pattern we have to follow. 
that we have a vision, even though it doesn't seem to be fulfilled like with Abraham, but it doesn't matter because we're following where God is leading us and we're trusting in him. You know, I mentioned our visit uh, last Sunday and our visit to Israel and just kind of testifying about the folks there at the, the church and the Bible school. And, it, you know, it was so precious there how they were talking about when they came to study the books from our fellowship, the books from the program. And, and they talked about how it was not just the teaching, but it was the vision that affected them. And it's as, it's as if their eyes were open that God had a plan for their life. And before they were just kind of wandering around figuring out, well, you know, maybe I should do this or that for the Lord. And it, it says that that totally changed their outlook. You know, they were telling us, now we know God's leading us somewhere. There's a purpose. There's a pathway. We're following it. They talked about their lives before they had a vision and now after. It's kind of like B.C. and A.D., you know, post-vision. Now we're, and they were rejoicing in that. They'd only been through a one, one year of the program, a certificate. But they'd received something. Their eyes had been opened. Now let's talk about another negative example, right? We're going to learn what not to do again. Um, Esau made a big mistake. Well, he made a lot of mistakes, but there was one really big one I want to bring out. He made the mistake of taking some of the things of God lightly. He made them of less importance than other things that he put priority on. That's a temptation in the Christian life. To, to emphasize the things we want to do or we like to do and to de-emphasize the things that, well, they're not really as pleasant or as interesting to me and so I, can, I will de-emphasize those. Well, that's what Esau did. And we're going to learn a lesson from him. Well, we probably know the lesson, but we're going to look over it again this morning. You know, some things are difficult and stretching and it can be easy to put them on the back burner of our desire, or our emphasis, or so forth, and discount them as not as important. But we see this in Esau in the story of him selling his birthright. That has significance for us when we're looking at the double portion. Because the birthright was the place of the firstborn. That was his right as the firstborn of Jacob. He came out of the womb first, even though they were twins. And so he should have received the double portion. But we know the story that he had been hunting all day and he wasn't successful. Probably had his bow and arrow or spear. I'm not sure what he used, but he wasn't successful. He found nothing and he was pretty hungry. And he came back and he found Jacob stirring a big pot of lentil stew. And he said, oh, that smells good. And... Esau asked for some. Now, Jacob was not in the right either because he used it as an advantage. Ooh, I can get something from Esau. At least I'm going to try. And so let's read in, in Genesis 25, 31. Jacob's reply was, okay, sell me your birthright. And Esau said, well, I'm at the point of dying. And what good is the birthright to me if I'm dead? Verse 34, 
Then Jacob gave Esau bread and pottage and lentils, and he ate and he drank. Drank. He ate. He did eat and drink, and he rose up and he went his way. Therefore, Esau despised his birthright. He despised it. It's an interesting situation is that Jacob didn't have the birthright, but he valued it. He desired it. And it had already been prophesied that the elder was going to serve the younger, that the younger was going to come to a place of authority and the elder would serve him. And so in one sense, that was his vision. And if he had trusted God, God would have worked that out. But he, he said, well, I wonder if I can be involved and make this happen quickly. And so he said, okay, Jacob, or okay, Israel, Israel, Esau, get the names right. Sell me your birthright and I'll give you this. And Esau went along with it. But, you know, it really shows that Esau didn't care about it. He had no value for it, for what God had for him. He didn't respect what God. He said, sure, I'll trade it. No good if I'm dead. Of course, that was a silly statement because he he could have easily found food. He could have gone to his father or the servants and said, give me some food and he would have been fine. Um, But he wanted satisfaction now, right that moment. And he was willing to trade what was valuable to obtain it. Well, that says something to us about as Christians and believers, you know, even though we're... 70 or 80 years upon this earth, it's just a moment. But we see things we've, we value on earth and we say, oh, I want that, when they're in conflict with eternity. But when we choose that and we count the things of eternity of little value, it puts us in the same place as Esau. That's why we must have that eternal sight to see, Lord, what's valuable here? What's valuable? That's the test of life. The enemy can say, I can satisfy you immediately. I can give you what you want right now. That's what he did to Jesus in the wilderness. That, that place of temptation when Jesus had been fasted, fasting 40 days and 40 nights, and he takes him to the pinnacle of the, of the temple, and he, and he has him to look out upon the world and He says, I'll give you all the kingdoms of this world. If you'll just give me a little worship, bow down and worship me a little bit. And Jesus responded in Luke 4, 7. And here's the questions being asked. If you worship me, everything will be yours. And Jesus answered and said to him, get behind me, Satan. For it is written, you shall worship the Lord thy God and him only shall you serve. Jesus had a vision of only serving his father. And so Esau's mistake was he despised the promise, the privilege that God had given to him as the firstborn son because of that natural thing he could receive in a moment, in an instant. Ooh, I mean, I can receive that now if I just do this little thing that I don't see a problem with it. Well, that's because it's a natural sight we're looking with. Christ's response was that when we keep our eyes upon the Lord and we value 
the way he's leading us, the things he's telling us to do, the things he's putting his finger on in our hearts. That is true worship. That is true worship. And so really what Satan is saying, when we value the things of life, we're worshiping him. When, the, when we value the things of eternity, we're worshiping God. That's kind of a scary thought. The decisions we make is worship. And that's what Jesus is saying here. I will only worship my Father because I value the things of heaven. And so we have to place great importance on the way he's leading us, the things he's telling us to do, because that is true worship. It's being a living sacrifice. As as Paul said in Romans 12 and verse 1, that to to be a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable unto God, which is our reasonable service. Again, we're thinking of that that, that thought of the negative, how we can learn from that. You know, it, it's very surprising when you look through Scripture and you see all of those who are firstborn and how many of them who were firstborn gave that, play, that position to someone else who was not firstborn. Seth replaced Cain. Isaac replaced Ishmael. Jacob replaced Esau, Joseph replaced Reuben, David replaced Eliab, Solomon replaced Ammon, Amnon, and in a sense, the church replaced Israel. Israel was the firstborn of God. We were the ones brought in later on. Of course, just, that's just in this age, but you know, many firstborn have not stayed true, and they lost their position, and others were brought in. You know, I was thinking of those those tribes. You know the 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 tribes that stayed on the outside of the promised land. They said, "Hey, this is a good place here. We like this here." You know, I was just considering them. They were all firstborn. I mean, think about it. That's quite something. Every one of those tribes was firstborn. Reuben was the firstborn of Leah. Gad was the firstborn of Zilpah, which was Leah's maid. And of course, Manasseh was the firstborn of Joseph, but Ephraim became the, the head tribe, which that was prophesied of by, by Jacob. And so other tribes that were not firstborn, they went into the land and they took the inheritance. And that's, that's kind of makes me tremble a little bit, Lord. I don't want to be that. Those tribes, those firstborn tribes, they they had the pl- the place, the calling, the position, but because they focused on something else, some land they were in now, they lost the vision of what was across Jordan, what God had for them in the inheritance. And of course, when when the time came when the enemies rose up, you know who was taken into captivity first? Those tribes. On the, that were outliers, those two and a half tribes. And so it's so important that we receive and hold on to the vision of following God's ways. Not our own ideas or our view and perspective of what is important in life, but that we prize and value the opportunities God has given us to follow him. 
You know, the opportunities that we have to change and be transformed. Even as the Lord was speaking in, in the prophetic, you know, that we have in this life is our opportunity to change, to be transformed, to come into that place of being the firstborn, receiving the double portion. Now, there's something I just wanted to consider here in closing. We're going to wrap this up. But with Elisha, we see in his life something that confirmed him in the way of the double portion. And we can read this in 2 Kings 2 and verse 12. It says, Elisha saw it. He saw the chariot of God coming to take his master up. And, he, and Elisha he saw it and cried, My father, my father, the chariot of Israel and the horsemen. And he saw him no more. He was gone, taken up into heaven. And so he took hold of his own clothes and he rent them in two pieces. They were no good anymore. You can't, it's hard to wear clothes if they're torn in half. And he took up the mantle of Elijah that fell from him. And he went back and he stood by the bank of Jordan. And he, we know he smote the Jordan and he walked through it on dry ground. But, but there's something we see with a, Elisha in order to enter into the new, there had to be a rending of the old. The old had to be destroyed, had to be rent. And so he, clo- he tore his clothes in, in two, signifying the end of that part of his life. He would not walk in that way anymore. And, you know, it's important for us when God is calling us on, when he's asking to do a new thing, it's so tempting to say, but Lord, I've been doing it this way all this time. That's going to be so new. It's so important for us when, when we sense the Spirit of God saying, I want to do this new thing in your life, that we tear up the old. Who was that great general or military leader who, who burned the bridges? Yeah, was it, was it, or he burned his ships, that's it. Yeah, it was, was it Cortez, you know, the Spanish explorer? He, you know, he got to the New World to explore and he burned his ships so that his men would not say, well, we can always go back home. So he was saying, no, we're committed. We're going to be here until new ships came and then could take them back. But in one sense, that's what God is asking for us to do is the old way has to be rent so that our heart is fully committed. And, you know, we don't have to worry about how we're going to do it. God will show us, and he'll, he'll speak to us. But he wants us to put off the old. Sometimes it's just it could be an old ministry or old focus that we've had, position, so that we can devote ourselves to the new. So often, before we can enter into the new things God has, he puts his finger on things in our lives. They're the old things. The old things that he wants to to remove from us, deal with in our lives. Usually it's, it's things from our past that are holding us back or weighing us down. It keeps us from running our race. Hebrews 12.1 Seeing we're compassed about, we're surrounded with so great a cloud of witnesses, we have some good examples to follow in their pathway. Let's lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily besets us and run with patience the race that is set before us. And so God will come and point things out in our lives. He'll come 
with his gentle touch. Of course, sometimes we don't hear the gentle touch or respond to it. So sometimes he's got to be a little more and more until it becomes a rod. And then, you know, you know how it goes. But the key to being people of vision, people who will see what God is doing, who have sight, eyes of faith, who can see the heavenly city afar off, is to see what God is doing now in our hearts. You know, there is something about, you know, we have this picture of people who, with vision, of like seeing these grand things, like Abraham saw that city, right? They have this unique ability to see heaven afar off. But there's an aspect of that that's true, right? That sometimes God will grant us, he'll give us visions and so forth. He doesn't always do that. But the practical aspect that he does to everyone is he points out things in our lives that are going to keep us from fulfilling the vision that will hinder us from coming to the glorious city. And so the people who have vision are the ones who see and recognize what God is trying to do today. Today, if you'll hear my voice, harden not your hearts because I'm bringing you into a glorious land. And so they'll cry out to God, Lord, remove the weight of sin that so easily besets me. I'll, I will not let you go until you bless me, as we looked at with Jacob, until you deal with this area in my life. And, you know, there's a wrestling with God that we all have to experience at some point in our lives. We meet with him and we're set free from our old ways to run the race that so easily that is before us to be set free. And each time we meet with God, He clarifies the vision. He establishes that vision in our hearts. becomes clearer and clearer. We become more committed to entering into what God has for us so that nothing can stop us. One more thing I want to mention. It's relating to that mantle being torn, the old being dealt with. We know Jacob or uh, Joseph went through many difficult situations that were not fair. His life was not fair. But that tells us, we, you know, life is not fair. And God did not promise he would not bring us through situations that weren't fair. Some, sometimes people will blame God because things happen. Lord, why did you do that? A good God wouldn't do things that are unfair. Wouldn't bring me through those things. Well, if anyone could say that, it's Joseph. Can you imagine having family members that would sell you into slavery and then just go about and live their life? Uh, it, that's hard to imagine, but they did. And he experienced that. But yet in the midst of that, God said, I want to make you a firstborn among the brethren. And he did that. And a part of that was he had to do something in him. And we see that in the name of his firstborn, Manasseh. And Manasseh's name means causing to forget, signifying that Joseph had forgotten all the, what his brothers had done, but also had been set free from the pain and the hurt of that, of that situation, the sting of it. 
you know, people will often say, oh, I've forgiven. And then when the next time they talk about that, you can just feel this, the, the, the hurt and the sting just coming up. Maybe they did it verbally, but yet it's still in their hearts. They're never free till they forget. Till God causes that forgetting. But he wants to do it. He wants to set us free from the past. And, you know, just in closing, there's, you know, some things we can learn from from this is that we have to cry out to God, Lord, set me free from those things of the past. If it's something that keeps coming up, God's made provision for that, for forgetfulness. But we got to be like Jacob. Lord, I'm not going to let you go till you bless me in this area. God wants to set us free to go on into the land of our inheritance. He wants us to take our eyes off the natural situations so they're set upon him so that we will value our birthright of becoming sons and daughters with God. Firstborn sons and daughters of the king. But in doing so, we have to allow God to come in and have the vision of recognizing when he's putting his finger on our lives and saying, okay, Lord, I surrender. But we also recognize he's setting us free to run our race and to cross the finish line victorious. He's calling us to Hebrews 12 and verse 23. To the general assembly and church of the firstborn, which are written in heaven, to the God, the judge of all, to the spirits of just men and women made perfect. Father, we just thank you for your calling that you have set before us, Lord, that you have not just saved us, Lord, but you have set us on a pathway, on a journey, that you've put a vision within our hearts. And Lord, we pray that you would do that work within us, that you would make us those firstborn among the brethren that we would qualify. Lord, give us that vision, those eyes to see. Lord, with eyes of faith. Lord, we, we do desire to have a glimpse of, of the heavenly city, to have a glimpse of something that would be a spur to us. Lord, that would encourage us to go on and to run our race. But yet, Lord, we, we cry out to you that we would have the vision to see you today working in our lives. Help us to know where we need to yield to you, to surrender to you, and that you would... Lord, do that work that would set us free. Lord, set us free from the things that would weigh us down and keep us from running the race. Lord, set us free from natural sight and natural thinking. Give us eyes to see what matters for eternity, we ask. And Lord, we just thank you. Thank you for what you've called us to and what you're bringing us into for all eternity and for the ages to come. And we thank you and we bless you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. The Lord bless you.